Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Say the words Chicago mob and any number of names come to mind. The biggest fish of all, Al Capone, of course, but also Bugsy Moran and Babyface Nelson and John Dillinger. The lawmen, too, who fought these gangsters tooth and nail. Elliot Ness, Special Agent Charles Apple. These names roll off the tongue with ease. Crime Junkie 101, maybe even Crime Junkie Kindergarten Class. But there was another outfit in the Windy City, too. One that's less often talked about. Partly because its origins are shrouded in mystery and its practices were for many years cloaked in a thick fog of rituals and secrets. Fog that even the G-men found difficult to access. In some ways, though the era of its heyday is now past, those secrets are still hiding in the mists of time. But here to part the curtain is Harrison Fillmore, author of the new book, Godfathers of Chicago's Chinatown, Triads, Tongs, and Street Gangs, published in May by the History Press. A longtime veteran of the Chicago PD, Harrison has done extensive research to produce this book, drawing on his own investigative experience and the help of some incredibly talented colleagues to help make sense out of a complicated period in the city's history. We're excited to have him join us. One note just on terminology before we begin, however. You'll hear us use two terms almost right off the bat, which need explaining. First, the word tong is roughly equivalent to crime families or gangs. And second, the Onleong Tong was one of the largest and most prominent Tongs prior to the Hipsing Tong, which rose up in challenge against it. Just so we're on the same page. For now, let's dive in to this new release from the History Press. Harrison, welcome to Crime Capsule and congratulations on your new book. Ah, thanks for having me. So this is kind of a buy one, get one free episode today in that, um, Harrison, you are joining us alongside a, a researcher that you have worked with on the production of this volume. Uh, Jim, uh, you'll say hi to us. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Really a pleasure to have both you guys on. This is a fascinating book. Um, this is a truly compelling journey into a part of the country and a part of our country's history that is not often uh, explored. And you guys have done an amazing job telling that story. And I want to I dive in in just a few minutes. But first, uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Harrison, uh, what, what's your background and how did you come to this book? Yeah, so we've got, uh, we've got about 30 years working in and out of uh, organized crime and research and uh, looking at uh, patterns and practices. And we just... You know, everyone knows about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Everybody knows the name Al Capone. We just knew that there was this whole other story in Chinatown that uh, was kind of unseen and unheard. Uh, so my background is working with Jim has been my creative partner and research partner for years. And then after a number of projects, we uh, we tackled this one. Harrison has been involved in professional law enforcement for a long, long time. And as, as, as I have been, I am actually a criminal prosecutor and have been for, I can't do the math, 26 years or something like that. 
And uh, I was actually, I, used to, I, and I part of it was for 10 years in, in investigating organized crime in the context of financial, organized financial groups and stuff like that. In terms of the writing stuff, uh, Harrison and I have been involved in numerous projects, movies. We actually were partners on a, a TV show together that we were partners with Harold Ramis to write a actual uh, fictional crime show. Uh, this was like uh, 10 or 12 years ago, Harrison, something like that. Right, right. Um, yeah, and it never got made uh, in the way it was, you know, that's its own kind of Hollywood saga. But like, uh, so I had a movie come out a couple of years ago and certainly uh, Greg is somebody that helped me with the shaping of that script, uh, previous uh, play of mine that ran in Chicago that uh, uh, was a was a crime story, and Greg was a big part of shaping that for for me. And uh, of course, right now we're always writing at least two projects at all times. Um, some uh, and, and so with this this project is his project, not not my project. And this is something that he just had me take a look at. And just try to help put shape to it. So most of the work on this is 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 certainly his. Now, why'd you have to go and say that? You help because <laughs> it's 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 definitely <laughs> true. All I did was just read it and act in this in this particular case as just an editorial editorial voice. Because this is ninety. This particular project really is ninety nine percent Harrison and me just coming in and and helping uh, shape the his own. The, the shape of, uh, of the, the narrative, really, that's all. I mean, you guys are writing under uh, pen names, assumed names here, but are you all both uh, born and raised in the Windy City? Yeah. Uh, we've actually known each other since... since we were kids, 16? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. 16 or 17. He, we were lifeguards, and then after that, uh, he was just he was a lifeguard north at a beach north of me. Uh, they were the drinking beach, and we were the fighting beach. I think that was how... <laughs> right isn't that kind of, kind of how it was yeah that sounds right yeah that sounds about right um so, so yeah. born and bred in chicago and uh you know while i have a chance i encourage everyone to go to chinatown you got to go there you got to see it yeah you know the book is ancient history it's organized crime from years and years ago now it's safe now you need to go to those restaurants you need to go to you, you got to check out three happiness any any place with a lazy susan that serves uh duck that's where you go eat you got to go old school. Yeah, absolutely. If you guys are from Chicago, I, ha I do have to. I'm contractually obliged to ask the most important question of all, which is, where were y'all when the Cubbies brought it home? <laughs> yeah, no, I was at uh, uh, Waveland and uh, Sheffield in the middle of it. And uh, yeah, no, it was it was insane. It was insane. Yeah. Jim, how about yourself? I was in my living room because me, all of my friends, we were so overwrought that we couldn't even watch it together. We were just all on a conference call. Like we were so out of our minds that we couldn't actually be in the same room. Yeah. I, I will never <laughs> forget the photos of just the entire city spilling out into the streets and just partying all night long. I mean, that really was truly historic in that moment. I'm, uh, so, I'm still so happy for you guys, even being a Braves fan. Oh. Yeah, you stole Greg Maddox from us. <laughs> no apologies. No we, made, apologies. we made him go. We uh, made him go. <laughs> well, we'll have to run another episode just to talk about the history of Chicago sports at some point, and I'll look forward to that with you yeah. guys. But <laughs> for now, let me ask you, um, what sparked your interest in writing about the uh, street gangs and the triads of Chicago's Chinatown? How did you first kind of come on to this particular topic? Yeah, it really was because almost everything that you could say about the mafia and the outfit has been said. And uh, this is just one of those 
really interesting, the colorful characters. Um, and it just, it, it is a story that really hasn't been told. And uh, Ben Gregg is, would never say this, but he is probably as knowledgeable about organized crime in Chicago, both right now and historically, as there is, as that exists in the world. That's not an exaggeration in terms of the professional work that he's done. Um, I think he's an uh, un, like an undisputed expert about uh, certainly street gangs in Chicago. There's no question about that. So uh, his ability to take that knowledge and apply it in a historical context makes perfect sense. So right now might be a good time to uh, explain that my nickname growing up as a kid was Greg, but uh, I run right under the name Harrison, just uh, to be clear. Gotcha. Gotcha. Appreciate that. So let me ask you guys, this is a collaborative endeavor and you mentioned a little bit about the, uh, the process by which, you know, this manuscript kind of came to be, I guess, uh, would you say a little bit more about what each of y'all brought to the table? So, I mean, Harrison, were you kind of uh, getting the raw material and then Jim, you were coming in and helping to shape it or Jim, were you also providing some of the legal expertise? You mentioned you're a prosecutor, you know, that would sort of help to inform a case. And then Harrison, you would have the investigative aspect. How did that sort of back and forth work? We've worked on a number of projects together. Um, uh, th- a lot of this was uh, hand-me-down material. It was uh, stuff gleamed through years and years of, uh, you know, just work in organized crime. Uh, there were some interviews. I know uh, uh, Jimmy had made some calls, talked to a couple people on the street just for a uh, little balance and, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, just a, a better better look at what's actually happening day to day and how it's considered in the Chinatown com, uh, community. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a lot of legal representation by uh, Jimmy, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of legal uh, <laughs> uh, explanations of how these, uh, the court system works and stuff like that. But um yeah, I did uh, a lot of the research and he did a lot of the editing. Yeah, he he gleaned a lot of this information. I think a lot of this information is unique to the great thing about this book is you're going to be reading things, I believe, that have never been seen anywhere else and probably couldn't be seen anywhere else because it's it's uh, declassified information that probably a lot of eyes haven't had the opportunity to to look at at all. You know, so it's newly declassified stuff that were that that uh, the author was able to you know, tap into that, that, uh, it was a unique opportunity to take a look at something that hadn't been seen before. I think reminds me of course, when the uh, Stasi files in former occupied Germany, you know, were, were released and suddenly you had these sort of waves of researchers, you know, heading over to Berlin to sort of learn what they were, uh, well, learn, were they being snooped on or were their family members being snooped on or who was doing the snooping, you know, that sort of things. Fascinating. The answer was always yes. It turned the answer was out. always, yeah. always, <laughs> Yes. Um, now, this does raise a kind of an interesting question, which is that um, you guys, of course, are working in a community that uh, has an internal language. And I was curious how uh, your expertise, you have a lot of people relations that you developed over the years, but um, where did the language issue of reading, studying, picking up on uh, sort of the unique Chinese dialects and sort of internal codes arrive in this book? Actually, most of it was from uh, interviews, uh, talking to people in and around the community and people that were were there when it was happening in real time. Now, keep in mind, this is a 
these would be older uh older folks uh or, or you know generations removed folks as you know really the last case the last case the big case we talk about happens five years before we even get jobs you know what i mean we're we uh we weren't working on this in real time. I, I want to make that clear. We're not part of the investigation. This was, you know, well over 40 years ago, you know. Uh, but no, it was talking to people and um, friends and family of other uh, people who, who were there and remember it, you know. And Jim, did you did you have any Chinese yourself as you were, you know, looking at these or were you relying on translations? Rel- relying on translations. Um, I, I think what makes it an interesting topic and why it probably hasn't been seen before is that Chinatown's unique relationship with law enforcement that made it probably a pretty difficult story to tell. Well, yeah, I mean, it was such a tight knit community, you know, and it, they always, you talk about the outfit not cooperating with the police, well, you know, multiply that by 10 when it came to the Chinatown community. Uh, not only the language barrier, but uh, just some of the cultural bar- uh, barriers where they just did not go to law enforcement for any problems. And in a way, that's how these tongs got so powerful. They were, in essence, their own police department, their own jurisdictions. And you don't really, you can't understand that until you actually handle a case that's come out of the Chinatown community and you you are actually speaking to witnesses, which I had some opportunities, like there was a, a man murdered at a card game. I mean, this is 20 plus years ago, so I don't think I'm, and uh, I, I think we eventually charged the case, but a guy was murdered at a card game. And you're speaking to the, and this is in Chinatown, and this is residents of Chinatown that you're speaking to. And the thing, the thing just happened, and you'll ask a direct question to witnesses, and they look at you like, you know, like you literally have three heads. They're not hostile to you, but they, their instinct to not answer your question goes deeper than any witnesses I've ever spoken to in my life. You know, like it, it, the, the, their distrust of me was so deep seated. I had never really. I'd never really experienced like that, anything like that because I had experienced a lot of hostility from witnesses, but never this pure, I can't say anything to anyone. And I assume that, I always assume that comes from what it was like growing up for maybe, maybe a lot of these folks in China as well, you know, which is a different, uh, so culturally different relationship with authority than we would have here, if, if that is true or not. But that was always just my instinct. Yeah, and it's quote, quoted in the book and we've heard it before. You know, I've personally heard it before. Where uh, yeah, we're not, we're not going to cooperate. We're going to ha- handle this the Chinese way, and that's that was common. Well, it's um, one of these tensions which runs like a thread throughout the entire fabric of the book. And in some cases, you have you know things opening up, and in some cases, you have things completely shutting down in those relations. And to see that those shifts over time is. Uh, just a really compelling part of the story, and we'll we'll get into that in just a little bit. Now, the main premise, almost sort of the opening gambit of triads here, is that there is an overlooked history in Chicago. I mean, you you argue from the jump that this entire history has been overlooked. Uh, overshadowed by the, the Italian outfit, the Czech outfit, the other ethnicities, right, that had their own organized units. And so why do you think that the Chinatown community uh, is sort of the, the last to be studied? Wow. I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, Greg, what do, you, do, you think, do you think it's possibility because it's, you know, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, it's the, it was the hardest story to tell. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Because of the language and because of the reticence of the community. Oh my God. Yeah. By far. In every city, you know, from San Francisco to New York, it was just a small, you know, uh, enclave of, uh, you know, ethnic Chinese. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a spread of, you know, Italian Americans throughout the whole city, even though, you know, they, they began in smaller neighborhoods. Um, I mean, that could be part of it, but yeah, I don't know if I have an answer for why. Remember Greg reaching out to a person who had spent their entire career in law enforcement and had spent their entire life living in Chinatown to this day and knew a lot of the players. So he's older. And so he knew a lot of the players involved. And, uh, you know, he said a c certain things about it and he goes, would you like, would you uh, care to be interviewed about it? Like specifics about this? And flatly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's true. That's no, true. <laughs> I, I, no, I, they would never, boy, I could never talk about them. Yeah, that I, was you know, like not, one of the interviews we approached. And said, absolutely the not. interesting yeah. thing about it has been not fear. Not, it's not like, I think these guys, it's going to back up on me. I fear for my, that's not what it is. It's just like, I don't think it's my place to speak. That's more what I felt like from a lot of these folks, like it's not my place to speak on this subject. You know what I mean? I thought oh, that's, uh, that's beyond what I, it, people would think I'm being a big shot or something or think acting like I know something or something if I were to speak to you or whatever. That, so it's, it wasn't a fear thing. Like we're talking about people that are long dead. It was more like, Oh, that's not my place to say, which makes it such a hard story to tell, you know, let's look at it from a different perspective. Then let's sort of flip the, flip the coin on the other side. I mean, how was it that these, uh, tongs arrived in the United States and in the Chicago area to begin with then? What was their actual point of entry into that area? Well, I know uh, actually a lot of it was Chicago was safer than the streets of San Francisco. Uh, there was a lot of violence out west uh, in the mining towns and railroad workers, and uh, they kind of found a, a safe spot. And I, I think you know, Chicago being such a melting pot and being such, uh, you know, an ethnic, uh, ethnically diverse city in its inception, uh, they found their own spot and they made their own way. So we saw a lot of that. I think there was a quote by uh, one of the Godfathers, uh, the Opium Dog, who said, the Chicagoans found us peculiar, but they liked us. You know, they didn't hate us and call us rat eaters and all sorts of other things that were common at the time. They they thought were uh, interesting, but they generally opened, you know, welcomed us with open arms. And I, and I suppose, Greg, compared to the, uh, you know, on the West Coast, the overt uh, xenophobic even laws that were passed as a reaction to the Chinese on the West Coast, right? That, I, you know, it's talked about in the books, the Chinese codes and stuff like that. You know, the Midwest, where they're just considered peculiar, is maybe a nice change. Yeah, you know? yeah, right. Now, you write that the uh, even before they entered this country, there was um, you can trace some of the ancestry of the Tongs to uh, kind of around the 17th century in mainland China, that there, there are some records which indicate there were sort of, you know, organized um, sort of groups of monks who were, you know, protecting certain areas. And then maybe out of those traditions, you begin to see the emergence of, you know, codes of honor and loyalty and brotherhood and so forth, which then come to define, you know, the, the modern Tongs. I, I was curious, um, though, when you begin to look at this transition, um, how much of the ancient origin of the Tongs survived in the 
transition into the uh, sort of 19th century American context, right? I mean, you're sort of arguing that these these tongs arrived here in the mid to late 1800s um, into Chicago. So how much did they bring with them of their old traditions? So, yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, ceremonially, I think there were, there were a ton of the old traditions that came over. Uh, you know, a lot of it you know, they began as benevolent groups. They were, you know, it was a place for Chinese to assemble, maybe find jobs, uh, maybe education, things like that. It was almost like, you know, and uh, you know, I'm going to use a lot of the uh, mafia and outfit references, but the Union Siciliano where, you know, they were about getting jobs for guys. They were a political, you know, faction. Um, I think that's the way these tongs began. Interestingly enough, their ceremonies for induction into these tongs to be essentially a made member like somebody in the mafia were some of the traditions and ceremonies were eerily similar to what the mafia has been uh you know has been known to do or at least documented to do where you know the burning of the the mass card and saying a uh, pledge you know and they were burning incense and burning uh you know yellow cards with names on them and um drawing blood in some circumstances, just like the Sicilian outfit used to do or was purported to do. So, yeah, I think they brought a lot of the old school traditions. I think it began to fade as much as any uh, any of the traditions would fade as far as turning more into a criminal element than uh, really, uh, you know, a, a benevolent association. I think that, like, like I, it seems to be a continuous thread to me that certainly um, the old word, the old world mindset of uh, the people was the was the the hardest thing to get to fade. The attitudes and the, that they had towards uh, the way they would live their life seemed to really run strong generation after generation. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. No, I don't. I don't want to be flippant here, but as I read your account, it did kind of strike me that um, he, here you have a lot of sort of ancient adornment. You have the you know the rituals and the incense and so forth. Um, but if you take a, a sort of hard look at the actual structure of these organizations, you know they it, it's also a business, right? I mean, they're also operating like corporations. You have a 
you know, the head guy, the CEO, you have the, the chief financial officer, you have an accountant, you have an HR guy, you know, the guy who's responsible for sort of recruitment, right? They might have the English secretary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like you, you've got, you've got sort yeah. of, you know, ancient <laughs> names, which are attached to these and the names are incredible, but the structure is actually very similar to something that we would recognize, you know, here in the West. Now, what I was curious about, though, was you you have this fascinating thread of numerology, which enters into the discussion, how important the numbers for titles and positions were. Can you just say a little bit about that? Yeah. So the numerology, there was, there's a lot of superstition going there. And, um, you know, even even some of the uh, extortion payments, you know, was a flat. You know, they go by the the English currency, so it's a flat one hundred, say, to uh, keep your business in line. Uh, you know, hundred dollars a month. Well, they would purposely make it a hundred and eight dollars for good luck because the number eight in their language uh, uh, rhymed with uh, prosperity, I believe it was. And so, yeah, numerology was very important to them, and they. Uh, every every code they had, their hand signals had numbers, and then even the, you know down to their extortion payments had good lucky good luck numbers. You have uh, this incredibly compelling account of thirty six oaths that initiates have to take before they can become a member of a tong, and you actually reproduce all of these oaths in the book. It it honestly felt like you're sort of reading the Ten Commandments. But on steroids, it's sort of like if you know <laughs> if I fail to protect the widow of my brother, may I die by thousands of knives? You know that sort of right. thing. <laughs> right. uh, it's it's a lot to take in, but but it's also uh, I was curious. You have you have these thirty six oaths, okay, and then you have uh, the entry level recruit that has to swear <laughs> these thirty six oaths is uh, listed as a forty nine that's kind of their their marker number as in their in the hierarchy now this is a maybe a very nerdy question to ask but you know uh, as a former math nerd back in my high school days I couldn't help but notice thirty six and forty nine are both squares it's six squared and seven squared are there are there is there a particular significance to squared squared numbers or cubed numbers in the the tong numerology? Wow, I don't know the answer to that. I am not a math nerd. In fact, I might be the opposite of a math nerd. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I really I I, it, I hadn't considered it. Uh, I just find the uh, the oaths dizzying by a you know by a certain number. Um, you know, and, and hearing the description of how they took them, it was almost like a sweat lodge, and it was your third day or second second or third day of initiation that you actually get to those and you're going through the gates and you're bathed first and there's a certain amount of bloodletting. So I think by the time you're reciting those quotes, you're, you know, uh, you're in a, uh, uh, a pretty meditative state, I would believe. Uh, but yeah, as far as the numerology, yeah, great, great. Uh, I, I'm not aware of anything, uh, as far as square numbers. Now, once once an initiate got past the oath taking and 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 so forth, at what point would someone achieve the equivalent um, of in the outfit what we would have called like a made man? You know, how long would it take you to become sort of untouchable, or was there ever really that point in the Chinatown community? Mostly, it came down to whether you were an earner or not. Much like the outfit, the more money you earn, the more money you got, 
the more uh, businesses you extorted uh, meant your rank within the, the, you know, the unit, the Adliang went up or the Hipsing went up. Uh, a lot of, quite a few of the presidents or ranking members were very successful restaurant guys or business guys, you know, so they, they were uh, in their own right kind of going through the, mo or, or coming up through the organization. Uh, so really it came down to if you were earning, if you were making money for the uh, larger organization. Could a member attain the status of becoming unkillable? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not certain if that, uh, if that would actually be a status. You will notice that uh, none of the uh, past godfathers, they all died of, uh, you know, natural causes. They weren't, they weren't whacking each other like they you know, an organized crime, um, you know, traditional organized crime. They they had these presidents and they had these so-called godfathers of Chinatown and they were revered, you know, uh, they were feared as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, the probably the highest ranking guy was that uh, Jack Lim and that he was the guy that was ch kind of challenging the status quo and challenging it, ended up flipping allegiances and, uh, you know, in the book kind of explains it, but he was probably the highest ranking guy that was whacked on the streets of Chinatown. When you see the, uh, you have instances of young Turks sort of attacking more of a established organization. You saw it not by an attack on, like you'd see in some more traditional American organized crime, like an attack on like, say when Gotti took out, you know, Castellano or something like that. But it's more like going into a restaurant that's paying extortion and, you know, uh, really making a mess of things and making a joke out of the the money that they're paying to the orga other organization. You, you see plenty of that to sort of put dents in, in, in another organization. But you don't see, I don't think, as much attempts to kill the head of the organization, I, the, you know, historically. True. And that's, that's how it kind of screwed up Chinatown's uh, organized crime in the end was somebody from the outside, somebody from New York, Nikki Louie coming in and uh, challenging the status quo and, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, screwed up everything for everybody at, at the time, you know? You know, those dynamics are fascinating to watch as they unfold. And it's interesting is that you, you begin to see, uh, you know, these rivalries between the gangs uh, become established. And yet there's always this negotiation, even as the gangs are kind of amassing power and amassing influence and amassing businesses under their wing and so forth. You know, you also see them uh, engaging in this fairly delicate dance with the Chicago PD. Right, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, the early days of their engagement because uh, you write that um, at first, as sort of prominent businessmen were gaining influence in Chicago, in Chicago's Chinatown, relations could be okay, but then then things began to sour a little bit, and I was wondering why why did that souring take effect? What what happened to kind of poison the well of the relationships, especially in this sort of 1890s where you're writing? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it was no harm, no foul. They're keeping it in their community. Uh, and then as soon as opium started seeping through to uh, other neighborhoods and other clientele, that's when, you know, that's when it became uh a scheduled narcotic. That's when the feds started getting involved. That's when they started looking at opium as a, uh, you know, as more of a crime as instead of a uh, recreational uh, event, you know, um, I think things like violence always bring attention uh, there. I think there's, there's a quote by a police captain who says, you know, we, 
we leave them alone. They're they're spending their money, but then when they uh, they start fighting with hatchets, that's when we got to get involved. You know, something to that effect. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, for the most part, it, it, their relationship with law enforcement is only affected when it starts, you know, getting violent and out of control. Uh, other than that, it was pretty quiet in Chinatown, you know? Yeah, predictably, insular communities like this and their relationship with law enforcement, and this being the most insular community, they're always going to have a decent relationship as long as they stay within a certain, the blocks that are assigned to them. If they start to stray outside those blocks, then people like police uh, captains find it to be a problem. Well, there's also this question of turf, isn't there, right? Because, I mean, you have the sense very early on that there's just not enough turf to go around. And um, there's a segment on page 39 of your book, Harrison, where you actually kind of detail the moment at which the tongs began to split into factions. You know, you began with sort of the only on tong, and then uh, a rival faction arises uh, out of uh, what they would argue would be necessity, right? Um, and it seemed like a sort of a key moment where you have this split that would then actually shape the rest of the coming century, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, and Chicago's unique in that way that uh, we essentially had two Chinatowns and for a short time, three Chinatowns, you know. Uh, so when we uh, when the Anilong left the downtown Chicago area and built their you know, they're building at uh, 22nd and Wentworth. And, you know, it was a long stretch. And that's what everyone thinks of now when they talk about Chicago's Chinatown. But originally it was downtown and it was in, a, you know, a, just outside of Levy District and Tenderloin District and the place they called Old Cheyenne because it was such a violent, violent, Wild West kind of shootout place. Uh, and it wasn't until the 70s that a third Chinatown, thanks to, um, you know, Southeast Asian immigrants and uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of the hip sing organizations began uh, moving up to the you know north of Uptown in the Argyle Street neighborhood, Argyle, yeah, and that became uh, essentially the second Chinatown or New Chinatown or Little Chinatown it was called, and the, the finally the last bastion of you know the SROs and a couple of taverns and slash opium dens, uh, dens uh, in that downtown Chinatown were, were gone. Uh, federal government uh, took over a couple of blocks to build their MCC, their their prison. Um, and that, that took out quite a few of the old businesses that were left. Um, there's a couple buildings left down there, but there's no, very little, very little sign of the original Chicago Chinatown. So it's interesting that it was moved a couple times and, and it's essentially split by Tongs, the little Chinatown and the real Chinatown. Like for an, for, for a community that's just organically crops up as communities do to literally just pick up and deliberately move to a different part of the city and establish a Chinatown that is very still firmly entrenched there at 22nd and Wentworth. If you visit there, it's, very distinctly Chinatown there. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that's if that's a kind of a historical first in the United States for a group to just pick up and move to a, like you know a couple a mile away or so and just start a new place. You know, deliberately so. But that kind of shows the power of the of of the On Leong, I think, too, to to be able to do that. You know. Yeah, you know, and I I think I mentioned it that it uh, you know it, at the time it seemed like the On Leong was uh, tucking their tail and running, kind of leaving their neighborhood, leaving the old Chinatown. When in essence, it was brilliant 
because they built their own things. They, they you know, they, they took over, they, they uh, began tourism. And uh, so what looked like running and losing the war ended up <laughs> essentially uh, being the, the most powerful Tong in Chicago, the more, pow- most powerful Chinese organization in the city because of that move. You know, what, what you're describing here is a community which is resilient, which is adaptive, which is uh, creative, which is uh, able to respond to uh, the pressures that are placed upon it, both internally and externally. And to my mind, no one figure represents uh, that capacity more than somebody you write about uh, as the unofficial mayor of Chinatown, one of the first unofficial mayors of Chinatown, which is Sam uh, Moy, and you have a lot of colorful characters in your book, Harrison. I mean, this this volume is sort of uh, shot through with pun pun not intended, um, with so many fascinating individuals. But Sam Moy, he kind of takes the cake. Now he was a pioneer. He was an innovator. He bridged worlds very, very successfully, both the Western and the ancient uh, traditional Eastern world. You know, he was a fixer. He was a gangster. He was a chef. He was an interpreter. He was a smuggler. I mean, he kind of did it all. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a guy, right? What a guy. Yeah. Uh, he was known for his flashy suits. You know, he was, uh, he'd wear what they, what they would call in the, the newspapers, Western wear, right? Um, he was, uh, he he liked the limelight. He liked uh, you know being the the center of attention, uh, and you know meanwhile smuggling, uh, being involved with human trafficking and opium dens and a lot of gambling. You know, uh, and he he was uh, like you said a fixer. He would travel the nation if there were labor conflicts or if there was a murder trial or or things of that nature. Um, he wasn't afraid to uh, get involved and. Yeah, colorful character, all right. But did people try to replicate his success, you know, or did people take leadership of the Tongs in other directions? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think he was the, the first one uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, he, he was the first one to invite Westerners into his, you know, casinos and his um, his neighborhoods into his enclaves, you know. Uh, and then he wasn't afraid of the limelight. He was, he was okay rubbing shoulders with politicians where, you know, um, leaders and uh community leaders before that were not uh he was okay with talking to the newspapers he he loved having his picture drawn in the uh you know in the old newspapers i think um you know and 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 just his uh his uh you know his outlandish clothes his his bright yellow suits and the things just to to call attention to himself as the king of celestials you know i think um that's what uh that that's what would happen, uh, you know, for years to come when you become the unofficial, you know, uh, unofficial mayor of Chinatown, you have this role to play and it's, it's straddling organized crime and, and, uh, you know, law enforcement. And, and guys like him, it felt like if, if he, he had to be able to, and you see this in, in guys that held similar kind of positions later, it seems like you have to, if you want to be the man, you have to act like the man. When the police call you for, for like they want to, there's a situation in your neighborhood, you can't be afraid to be the guy to pick up the call. You know, you have to be the guy that's willing to do that. You know, you make your money the way you make your money, but if there's someone who's really in trouble in your community, you have to also be the guy that's going to step up and, and, and try to actually do something about that problem. You have to be a community leader as well. 
Yeah, no, and he, he's the one that quashed uh, two hits on two policemen. You know, there was uh, a contract out on two policemen that were uh, raiding uh, gambling houses, and Sam Moy stepped in and quashed them and uh, made sure the detectives were safe. So, yeah, there's a little bit of playing on both sides there. Meanwhile, he's collecting from the same gambling houses. <laughs> Everybody's got a hustle, yeah. right? Everybody has their hustle. So uh, I, I always get the feeling he didn't find it strange at all to be playing, wearing both of those hats. They were the same hat to him. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, when you're in the limelight like that, um, of course, you are bound to attract attention, both, both of the sort of praiseworthy kind and of the kind that uh, leads you down some darker paths. And we're going we're gonna to come back to that next week as we start to look at the rivalries that emerged between the On Leong and the Hip Sing. Um, but for now, uh, Harrison, Jim, thank you guys for joining us. And we will see you right back here in a week's time. Great. Great. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Harrison Fillmore, author of Godfathers of Chicago's Chinatown. Triads, Tongs, and Street Gangs, a brand new title just published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or visit your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Harrison and Jim. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.